Take a precocious high school youth, suing his local school system, a whistleblowing revealer of national security secrets, and an assembled chorus of contrary views, and what do you have? Well, you have today's show. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Got a secret, can you keep it? Swear this one you'll save. Better lock it in your pocket, taking this one to the grave. If I show you, then I know you won't tell what I said. Cause two can keep a secret if one of them is dead. It has been said, rather sardonically, that two people can only keep a secret if one of them is dead. In other words, matters of secrecy are often revealed by one party or another. In personal relationships, such disclosures can be hurtful. But with matters of international intelligence, revealed secrets can literally produce world havoc. When Edward Snowden released top secret files from the National Security Agency, some may have wished indeed to see him dead, but my guest Barton Gelman simply wished to see him, to ask questions of the secretive revealer of secrets. Got a secret, can you keep it? Swear this one you'll save. Better lock it in your pocket, taking this one to the grave. If I show you, then I know you won't tell what I said. Cause two in the 1970s, Barton Gelman attended George Washington High School in Philadelphia, where he realized that he had, well, limited potential as an Olympic gymnast. And so he considered the extracurricular pursuit of editing the school's newspaper. After all, there was an open position. But things did not go well when Gelman decided to run a series of stories about teenage pregnancies at his own school. The principal burned all the issues and moreover fired him. The precocious Gelman? Well, he filed First Amendment challenges in a U.S. district court opposing both the principal and the entire school district of Philadelphia. And subsequently, he won a favorable settlement. Thus began a prestigious journalistic career. Burton Gelman would go on to pursue further education. He would go and receive a summa cum laude for undergraduate work at Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton, and then later attain a master's from University College at Oxford. He has worked extensively at the Washington Post before moving to Jerusalem where he covered the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin and the rise of Benjamin Netanyahu. Returning stateside, he covered Madeleine Albright and after 9-11, of course, Al-Qaeda. Barton Gelman was instrumental in exposing a concept called the shadow government, associated both with the Clinton and the first George W. Bush administrations. 
In 2005, Gelman became aware of the Department of Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, attempting to create a rival agency to the CIA. He was disturbed by aspects to the USA Patriot Act. For three years, Barton Gelman was contributing editor-at-large for Time magazine, and in 2007 he wrote a New York Times bestseller, Angler, the Cheney Vice Presidency. By 2013... Gilman had, well, got the attention of many with his pursuit of investigating what became known as global surveillance. Gelman met with former National Security Agency CIA subcontractor Edward Snowden in Russia. Now, you will recall that Edward Snowden copied highly classified information that revealed global surveillance programs that included what became known as the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance mainly comprised of five nations, English-speaking nations, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, and the United States of America. Also co-joined with this sharing of information were various surveillance alliances with telecommunication companies in Eastern and Western Europe. The matter was covered in The Guardian, Der Spiegel, The New York Times, and of course The Washington Post by my guest. Along the way, Barton Gelman has earned three Pulitzers, two Emmys, and an array of other respected and highly coveted accolades. His latest book is entitled Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State. Barton Gelman, welcome to Watching America. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, I want to begin at the beginning. Uh, when you went to the, to the, to the George Washington High school. Did you innately have an interest in writing, or was it just uh, just a series of options, and by default you decided to work at the newspaper? I think there was something that appealed to me about being able to ask nosy questions and write what you found out. Uh, I always liked that ability to uh, to to trawl through the world and and find things that interested you. Well, to use a Yiddish term, if I may invoke it, you had a lot of chutzpah to uh, to place a, <laughs> place a, 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 a charge against your school in the Philadelphia School District uh, before a, a major court. Uh, were you encouraged in that regard? Or even as a young man, did you have any undoubt, uh, uh, unsteadiness and doubt about the, uh, the application of doing it? I just turned out to be not very good at sitting down and shutting up. It seemed unjust to me, and I had this sort of adorable teenage hubris that I could challenge the school district uh, in constitutional uh, lawsuit. And so uh, <laughs> I just went out and found a lawyer and did it. Well, let's look at um, the things as they started to emerge. You did get hired um, very, very early at the Washington Post, and that would become your mainstay place of application for uh, work for a long, long time. Although, as alluded to already, you would go and work for other uh, services and magazines and uh, certainly editor-at-large for, for time. Um, in the process, were you always interested in the political or was there anything else that may have uh, stimulated your interest, like uh, social issues in the more general sense? I'm interested in, in power and what's done with it and, and holding the powerful to account. So it wouldn't have to be necessarily political. For example, I spent a full year in the year 2000 uh, tracking the uh, backstory of the global spread of AIDS and how it is that uh, governments and the uh, World Health Organization and big drug companies ignored it for so long. Uh, you could call that political, but I, I, I thought it really was about people's lives. 
Well, sometimes it's very hard to delineate between the political and the social because one impacts the other most definitely. Let's get to your book, um, Dark Mirror. Uh, the beginning of this really seems to have culminated from you one day in your inbox getting um, basically five letters written, V-E-R-A-X. What was your initial response to that, Verex? So I don't even know how to pronounce it, honestly. So I, I, I think it's Virax, Ed, which I had to look up as Latin for truth teller, mm -hmm. was the anonymous handle selected by Edward Snowden, whose identity I did not then know, to reach out to, uh, at the time, two journalists. Uh, first, Laura Poitras, the filmmaker, and then myself. And he said that he was a uh, member of the intelligence community and he had a very large scandal to unearth that he wanted that he was going to be able to provide proof of a uh, of of surveillance that was, had grown so large that it threatened American democracy. Now let me interject here and ask you, if I may. Yeah. When you first read that, you're a journalist. Journalists get hit with all kinds of loony bin people trying to contact them on every single issue that you can possibly imagine. Were you skeptical? Uh, were you looking at this with you, you know, your tongue in your cheek and saying, mm, really? Or did you sense I, that there might be something valid to it? I was deeply skeptical. It is uh, very common, especially um, in the world of intelligence and secret operations, to uh, be gifted with tips from uh, cranks or from the mentally ill or mm. from uh, people who are who are sincerely believe that they have an important story but don't really understand what they're what they're talking about so i was skeptical and i thought it highly unlikely to play, to pan out so when you first initially saw it and you thought okay i'm going to investigate this did you keep it to yourself or did you just say to a colleague you know there's a nutcase here i think or did you kind of nurse it and say okay i'm just going to take it step by step and reach out to the tool the two alternative journalists that you were supposed to contact. No, so Virax had had come to me uh, by way of Laura Poitras. Uh, Poitras and I knew each other, and she wanted my help because I had covered surveillance issues before. So the two of us worked through it, and we we were in joint contact for a while with the man who turned out to be Snowden, uh, and we took it very seriously. Uh, if it was true that this was a real intelligence source with a real intelligence scandal. We knew we had to protect it carefully. Hmm. Uh, and he, he was only prepared to uh, speak, so to say, over encrypted channels on anonymous links, the kind of thing where you're typing characters at each other, uh, don't know each other's voices or faces, and you, you bounce the signals around the world to disguise their origin, uh, all that sort of thing. I was, I was a bit uh, of a security geek myself and the fact that he took these precautions uh, did give us a sense of seriousness. Okay, that makes complete sense. Um, did you wonder if perhaps you were being set up uh, by an alternative intelligence of perhaps another nation or some nefarious body? Oh, I absolutely worried about that. I, I, first of all, for weeks of our interaction, we did not have any actual document he was negotiating about whether he would provide a document. He was vetting me to see whether he could trust me or whether he could convince himself that the Washington Post would publish a story against the wishes of the government, uh, which he doubted and I never did. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I, 
I worried you know, the document's going to come. It could be a forgery. It could be uh, some uh, draft document that was never adopted. It could be inauthentic in some other way. It could be authentic but wrong. Sometimes you have uh, a real document with, with, with incorrect facts in it. Uh, that would be almost as bad. Uh, the, and, and I also worry that it might disclose something that I shouldn't disclose. So what was the next step? What was the um, – I appreciate the fact that you, you indicated that because of the complexity of how he was operating, it seemed to be quite legitimate from your end, you being a self-confessed geek with um, secrecy. What was the next step that made you say, okay, this is, is to use the word in relation to uh, Varric's veracity. Uh, do, do you had a, did you have a particular moment where you said to yourself, okay, this is it. Go ahead. Green light. We can move with this. Just before – I received the document, the first document. I had come to believe that it was likely to be real. Um, I had subjected him to dozens and dozens and dozens of questions about the provenance of the document, about his ability to... to uh, I mean, I, I asked him very simply, why should I believe that you have access to classified information, much less the ability to vouch for it? That was one of my first questions. Mm. And we went back through detailed answers uh, I asked him what the government would say about it. I asked what could be said about him that was negative. Did he have, what you know, had he been fired? Was he a drunk driver? Uh, you know, any of the usual sort of things that can discredit a source. Uh, and the more I asked him questions, the better I liked the answers. Now, what what happened was. He sent one document one day, and the next day, unexpectedly, sent more. We, would, we had been talking all this time about a document, and a day after sending the one document, he sent what turned out to be 50,000. Wow. Uh, the volume alone did help vouch for the authenticity. I mean, you could imagine a forgery or 10 forgeries, but who would possibly go through the stupendous amount of work of forging 50,000 documents? Yes. Yes. Uh, unless perhaps they were the Unabomber. Um, wow. Okay. So <laughs> uh, astonishingly, you get this vast volume of work. And um, do you immediately set about to you know, make your way through it? Or did you say to yourself, this is uh, too voluminous, I'm, I'm going to have to bring others in? I was torn. Uh, I immediately saw from paging through a few of the files that there were things in there that were going to be important and newsworthy. I also immediately saw that there were things in there that I would not wish to, to make public. For example, a photograph of uh, a clandestine case officer in the field uh, or names and photographs of specific surveillance targets who were sort of self-evidently legitimate targets. That, you know, It could be an al-Qaeda leader and here's how we're listening in, that sort of thing. Uh, so... I wanted help, but I didn't want to invite anyone else to come sort of browsing through the documents with me because if you want to keep a secret, it's better to keep it to one than to two. Mm. Well said. In the process of your early um, communiques between the two of you, did was there any elements of personality that came through that you could recognize, like hints of humor? Uh, was there anything that was uh, revealing of perhaps a personality? There was. Uh, he he was uh, clearly well-read. Uh, he liked to uh, quote passages from 
famous works. Uh, he was familiar with the ideas of political philosophers. Uh, he had a wry sense of humor, uh, occasionally profane, uh, and he was quite prickly about boundaries that he set. Uh, he did not want to talk about himself uh, or his personal life or his motivations especially. Uh, anytime you cross that line, he would clam up. And from time to time, he would ask me questions like, are you purposely ans asking questions I won't answer to, just to piss me off? There was one time early on when I wrote a profile of him, and it was the first time that I ever said that he used the name Virax. He had, he had recently outed himself. He said, I'm Edward Snowden, and I'm the source of these stories. Wow. I thought it would be okay at that point to say he was using this um, anonymous handle, call, uh, calling himself Virax. Well, he was still using that as part of an online account. Uh, so it was, it was still an active anonymous handle for him online, and I blew that, and he was angry about it. So when he got angry, would he send you a snippy email, or would you just uh, cease to hear from him for a few days? He stopped talking to me for weeks. Uh, wow. Uh, it may have, been, may have been two months before I talked to him again. He eventually told me, because he saw me differently than he saw Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras, he saw them as advocates and allies, which they were. Mm -hmm. uh, they were they were part of the same public debate. They were participants in the debate. They were they were they were they had chosen a side, and I was more of an arm's length journalist in in a sort of mainstream news sort of way. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, "I don't think I can ever trust you to watch my back," which he was right about. Uh, uh, but I can trust you to report. He was right about that too. Did you feel complimented by that in a strange way? I felt that he, I, I did, yes. I mean, I, I felt that he had positioned me exactly as I wanted to be positioned. I, I, I admired many things about him. I like him personally. Uh, but I couldn't be on his side in a, uh, in a debate against the surveillance establishment. I thought he did more good than harm, uh, but it wasn't my part to be uh, one of his advocates. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Barton Gelman. He is the author of Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State. So um, when you get through this period of uh, query on his part, uh, whether or not to know he can trust you, and you go through two months, they must have been in some ways intellectually agonizing, of a complete void, no communication, and then he resumes... And then he um, quite accurately uh, describes you as being somebody who is not going to protect his back for the sake of protecting him because you're not going to align yourself just for a side for the sake of it. But with the integrity of a journalist, he also recognizes he can trust you. Where does the relationship go from there? From there, the relationship is honestly not as important as the documents that he provided. I would sometimes ask him, to explain something that I didn't understand, and sometimes he didn't understand it either. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing you have, to, you have to know about these documents is they didn't uh, clearly point out what stories in them. You couldn't just pick up a document, read it, and then write a story saying, here's the following disclosure. The documents were scattered clues, um, highly technical, highly opaque, filled with acronyms that were never, never um, unpacked. Uh, they were written by and for insiders. And, uh, and, and so what I had to do was I had to uh, 
put those clues together from multiple documents and then do reporting from sources outside the government and sometimes inside the government to figure out what it all meant. So I would talk to him, and he liked those conversations. Uh, he felt very comfortable in those conversations. I would say, I see this and this. I don't know how the, they fit together. Um, he would say, I don't know, but I have a reasonable hypothesis here. Or he'd say, I do know. Or he said, I have no idea. I mean, what I liked about him yes. is I could trust him. Uh, he, I could trust him to say, I don't know, which is something that not all sources learn to do. Right. Certainly people looking for self-grandizement. Uh, and so I, I can get that. One of the things, obviously, that people will think of immediately is this this story almost having the significance, or indeed having the significance, I need to amend that, of uh, Bernstein and Woodward and, uh, we, you know, the whole issue of all the president's men. There is, uh, there's a fascination with how the, the story unravels. Uh, and I'm wondering about your personal life, why this is all going on. I mean, you have a lovely lady that's in your life. Did it affect your relationship? Were you able to concentrate on anything else? Could you wind down and watch a movie at night, or were you just working your way through endless documents constantly? Well, there was a lot of work, uh, so uh, there's that. And it was also the case that in the past, I had been able to talk to Daphna, who's a fellow journalist, about almost everything I was doing. Yes. Uh, she understood my world, and um, I was comfortable taking her into my confidence. Uh, I trust her. Right. But there were legal issues that prevented me from opening the bag on this particular story. She knew that I was highly wound up about something, that I had a spooky secret source and story. She didn't know what it was uh, until the first story appeared, and I couldn't tell her. Uh, because uh, in, in law, if you tell something to a lawyer, usually it's privileged. But if you've also told someone else, then it no longer is privileged. Well, let's go back to the documents themselves and some things that uh, emerged and uh, phrases which are alien to most of us, but you now are privy to knowing what they mean. What was the usage of dirty word searches? Uh, w what does that mean? Well, this is part of the really quite fascinating story of how a 29-year-old systems administrator managed to beat the world's most powerful uh, electronic surveillance agency at its own game. He was stealing its secrets while remaining undetected. And one of the ways he did it was to go through the uh, computer systems under his domain and search for terms that he shouldn't be able to find. So for example, if you search for um, the term no foreign, which means don't distribute this to any foreign uh, counterpart, no foreigners get to see this. If you search for no foreign in a database of information that's shared with the Five Eyes allies, that and you find something, then you then you know it shouldn't be there, and it, you also know that it may be especially interesting and sensitive. Right. Uh, he he was able to obtain the names of uh, compartmented secrets. That is to say, uh, well, there was a program that was several uh, several connected programs actually that spied on Americans called Stellar Wind. Uh, it might be that he had clearances to see the list of terms, like the, the list of cover names like Stellar Wind without actually being allowed to look at the contents. But if he searched for that, he might find a document which was misfiled and in his grasp. So he went through essentially looking for documents that shouldn't be where he was looking and taking advantage of it when he found them. 
Wow. Okay, so uh, in the process, uh, he's filling in the holes. Is there any danger of the wrong, if you will, gap theory where you just substitute something that really shouldn't be there, but you're inclined to do that? Were there examples of that occurring where, um, you know, A and B did not necessarily lead to C? Are you saying if he made the wrong, surmised the wrong conclusion based yes, on what he saw? that's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, yes, uh, there's always that danger, and I didn't rely on him for conclusions. I, I didn't, I didn't use him as an authority about what the documents meant. I, I used him as a way of, uh, as first of all the source of the documents, and second of all as someone who could give me leads, or clues about what they meant. But I didn't take him to be an authority on everything in that, in that archive. He couldn't possibly be. What was meant by the system called Heartbeat? Heartbeat was another central uh, method by which Snowden uh, found and exfiltrated the many tens of thousands of files that he did. Uh, Heartbeat was his own project. He, he did it in his uh, in his downtime uh, at the office at at uh, the Cunia facility in Hawaii. It was a system designed to give one stop access to analysts to information that was actually located in many different systems around the world. So if you are uh, an analyst of China and you need access to files on China, you might you might need uh, stuff that's in this, this NSA database, that NSA database, um, something from the CIA, something from the State Department, something from the FBI. And each of those required a separate log on and extensive security procedures. His idea was to uh, provide essentially one gateway that would get you everything you needed on this particular subtopic of China, wherever it lived. And that gave him the, uh, the, the excuse uh, and the permission from his superiors to tap into these other databases around the world. And so it gave him a lot of access to documents that he that he'd later decided to leak. When did you decide to run with it? Oh, should I, I really should say, when, when did the, the Washington Post decide to run with it? Well, I came to the Washington Post. I was no longer an employee there. I went back asking to uh, come on board as a, uh, as a contractor. And in essence, I wanted them to share the responsibility and the risk and provide me the legal advice and provide me, uh, you know, another set of eyes uh, to 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 uh, check my work. I didn't want to be freelance Bart um, on a story like this. Mm. And I brought the the prison story, which was the one about operations that that took data from large U.S. internet companies. And I I brought up the slide deck and I walked through the deck with Marty Barron, the editor of the paper. I said, "This is what this means. This is what that means." Um, here is uh, the emblem of the unit in the NSA that's doing this work. You see how it's an eagle grasping the internet in its claws. Uh, and that number here, S23233, is actually the designator for uh, the, the PRISM operation under special source operations. And here's how they relate to other parts of the NSA. And I walked him through the whole thing. I said, here's why I think it's news. Here's why I think it's important. Here's what I think the U.S. government's going to say about it. Are you interested? And he said, okay, because he's kind of a laconic 
guy. He's one of the great, great editors in American journalism. Uh, he's a man of few words. And I said, okay. He said, <laughs> okay. We can, we can work with your, your conditions, because uh, I asked for a lot of conditions. Uh, we want the story. Um, let's do it. What were your conditions? It was, the conditions were all about protecting the material. This, you have to understand that, that even one document with uh, classified stamps like this, which was above top secret, uh, was not something that, that you had seen in an American newsroom before. We learned lots of classified information in the course of our reporting because the government overclassifies and classifies everything just about having to do with foreign policy or intelligence or national defense. Uh, but you don't usually get the piece of paper. You don't usually get the document. Uh, and here I here I had tens of thousands of these documents. They were they were like a giant bullseye on, on our on our backs. And I had learned something about uh, communication security by then. And I said, I'm going to need a safe and a separate locked room with no windows in it. We're going to need to work. We're going to need to have computers that that we remove all the network hardware from so that they can't touch the internet. We're going to need encryption keys. The people who work with this with me are going to have to learn how to use this and that software package. Uh, you know, there, there's going to be, I, I'm going to divide up the key material so that uh, one reporter maybe has this combination to the safe, another one has the passphrase, and the third one has access to the uh, physical key that decrypts the uh, archive, and no one but me is going to... Uh, have the key to the room, that sort of thing. Barton, let and, me ask you um, about your technique just for a second. Um, I mean, this is the closest we had come to anything like this of a disclosure, and this is not bogus, so it's not the Pentagon Papers, but this is, you know, the the fulfillment of what many believed would be in the type of thing with the Pentagon Papers going way back. You're actually fulfilling this, and it's coming to fruition. How did you assemble the knowledge? You self-describe as a geek with, with this type of stuff. You bring exceptional skills to your journalism that the average journalist would not be privy to. How did you develop this knowledge, this body of wealth of information? Well, it started in the uh, mid-2000s uh, when Time magazine, uh, in response to a federal subpoena, gave up the notes of a reporter uh, to authorities against the reporter's will. And I began to see that there were more and more investigations into the sources of uh, national security reporting, uh, that the government was going after us, uh, and that we needed self-defense. So I learned how to use encryption. Mm. Uh, and I didn't, I, didn't want, I didn't want anyone else but me to have the power to comply with the subpoena. Uh, I learned then that who talks to whom is just as important as what they say. And so I learned how to use the software for anonymity. Uh, and then during the course of this Snowden story, I learned a lot from Snowden and from uh, computer security experts uh, how to take it to the next level. And so I, I knew the basics of how to firewall mm -hmm. off the, the material by the time I started working with the Washington Post. I knew that I knew what some of the threats were. Uh, for example, that computer monitors emanate radiation that someone else can decode with a special antenna. Uh, let's say if I if I type the quick brown fox on my computer screen, someone outside the room, outside the window, can point a, a dish uh, and and hear quote unquote those signals as they cross the monitor and 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 reproduce what's on my screen. 
So I knew I wanted a windowless room. Okay, so I mean, it's not as though you went as far as having like a lead encased room or, or something, but you took every other precaution. <clears throat> I'll tell you, if I could have had a lead encased room, I probably would have. Uh, but I tried to keep my uh, requests within reason. Got you. Okay. So um, now they decide to go with it. The initial story's run was to some degree, and I'm saying this carefully, of justified paranoia on your part once the story was out. I thought that there was likely to be uh, surveillance on me. I thought it was likely that someone would try to steal the documents. After all, we said in the stories that we were withholding certain portions of them because they would they would do harm to the national security. That's just about like waving a flag and saying, uh, Russia, come come get me. Right. Uh, so I was paranoid, uh, and they were trying to get me. Comey, uh, Comey affirmed that later, didn't he, with you? Comey did. Uh, Comey, aff- Comey affirmed that the government um, had had made me part of their investigation. So the U.S. government was surveilling me, uh, and so were foreign governments. Google warned me that state-sponsored attackers were attempting to compromise my accounts. Um, I watched my iPad hacked in front of my eyes um, as the screen guttered out and uh, computer text started scrolling up saying that it had discarded the operating system and was installing a new one, that sort of thing. Mm. Wow. I, I was, uh, I mean, just one, one more thing, and it was a big one. Uh, I was reading through the files the first summer after receiving them from Snowden, and I've, I came across my own name in one of the NSA documents. Gosh. It, it, was, it, was, a, uh, it was a memo mm-hmm. from the NSA director to the Attorney General of the United States calling for investigations of the reporters uh, who'd written stories that disclosed NSA secrets, and three of the stories were from me. So they were essentially saying the FBI should start an investigation of Gilman. Now, when your iPad went dark, uh, obviously you have different operating systems. Did you ever wonder that, you know, agencies, uh, entities like Apple were complicit with this type of thing happening? Well, I knew that Apple did, in fact, turn over information under legal compulsion uh, by the NSA, but I didn't think that Apple was complicit in, in the uh, in this hack. It was a it was a it was a hack that actually bypassed Apple security and a a rather expensive one uh, because it's very, very hard to break through Apple security uh, without connecting the device to a wire. To do it remotely from from a distance um, is a capability that is rare and expensive and it costs, you know, in the neighborhood of a million dollars to buy one of those. In reference to more conventional surveillance, speaking of surveillance, when you went out to a restaurant, did you feel that you know the man at table booth four might be an agent looking at you while you're eating your spaghetti? I think it would have been just too exhausting to, to think about that. But I will say, at our local Chinese restaurant, uh, Davna broke open her fortune cookie and it said, put the data you have uncovered to beneficial use. <laughs> 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 uh, I, if there's a cinematic say, version of this, this has got to be in it. That's got to I, be I, it. I, I, I saved that uh, fortune. I framed it and I brought it to Snowden in, in Moscow. <laughs> That's fabulous. Well, let's look at some other facets that you discovered. One is uh, what's known as the Mainway, uh, which is a, evidently a national security agency database for social graphing. Now, that's scary. Explain what that is, please. 
Mainway did something called contact chaining, which is to say it looked at each person and who they talked to. And then it looked at the contacts of their contacts and the contacts of the contacts of their contacts. Uh, and, it, and it drew a network map of how essentially everyone is related, everyone is connected. Uh, did you ever hear the the, uh, the sort of parlor game of uh, six degrees of separation? Yes, of course, yes. Right. So the idea is that you could you could chart a path from anyone to anyone in a certain number of jumps. Uh, in America, uh, data scientists have estimated that you could get from almost any American to almost any other American in just three jumps, three mm. hops, as they call it. Yes. The NSA was was drawing uh, contact chains um, from a database of American telephone calls, and it was churning through those at all times. It was a prodigious operation, even for the computing power of the NSA, to uh, to take these trillions of calls and the hundreds of hundreds of millions of Americans uh, and and to plot this graph. Uh, but what it gave them was the ability to uh, to see connections for all of us. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Barton Gelman, who has a absolutely enthralling book called Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State, which we've just been speaking at some length about. There is also a, a connection between the United States and my homeland, the UK, with what's known as GCHQ, otherwise known as Muscular. Could you explain what that is? Well, that was, uh, I think, one of the most significant stories to come out of the Snowden leaks. Um, Muscular was the cover name for a program in which the NSA, working with its British partners, broke into the links, the private links between Google data centers. So what's a data center? It looks like a walled compound. It's a, it's a gigantic sort of, you know, Indiana Jones style warehouse full of computer servers with its own power substation and uh, fences and electronic security and so on. This is where th 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 this is the the so-called cloud that Google invites you into when you search or when you do email or when you do a video call. Mm. And they have these data centers all around the world. Google has purchased or leased private fiber optic cables thousands of miles long that connect its data centers. And the NSA broke into uh, one of the cable junctions so that it could uh, it could help itself to whatever it liked from the Google data centers. Uh, this was despite the fact that it had the ability under US law to request the data and Google would hand it over. So it was putting itself in a position where it could collect from more than a billion accounts. Uh, and Muscular was the name of this program. I, I, I found that quite startling because even though the operation took place overseas, it, the NSA had to know that it was going to be sweeping in hundreds of millions of Americans because just about everybody has some kind of a Google account. Do you think there was some kind possible uh, potential for collusion between Google and this? I mean, could it have been that Google was turning a blind eye knowing that they were being tapped in, but they thought, well, we'll plead ignorance and just let the government go ahead and do it? No, in this case, uh, Google was quite outraged uh, and appalled by what happened. And it set in motion a, uh, 
a rather remarkable phenomenon in which large American technology companies uh, spent tens of millions of dollars in an effort to thwart the collection of their own government's intelligence services. So Google began to encrypt things that it had not encrypted before. One of the reasons that Edward Snowden um, has been so good for the security of the American consumer, of the average person who uses Google services, or banking services, or commerce, or uh, just general browsing around the web, is that these disclosures impel the tech companies and the internet providers to harden their communications and to lock them down. Well, Edward Snowden was asked this question by a series of actors that had gathered in a cafe to talk to him. Uh, And now I'm going to ask the question to you that he had to answer. In your estimation, Barton Gelman, is there a place for clandestine secret services? Oh, I absolutely believe there is. There is. Uh, I I think that we need intelligence. I think that... uh, any rational American government, let's just, I'll speak of my own country, uh, wants to know what its enemies are doing. There are people who are, who are plotting harm to Americans and American interests. There are, there are others who are our competitors in the world who are using spying of their own. So if you can find out uh, what, is, uh, what is the government of Iran really thinking uh, and ready to do in, in the next set of negotiations. Uh, any American policymaker would want to know that. So I think there's an absolutely a place for it. Well, nations do it all over the world. Uh, you lived in Israel. So, you know, Mossad uh, has been involved in this, even going all the way back to the era of Golden Meir and, and Richard Nixon, the sharing of information. At what point do you call it foul and say wrong? Well, one of the points which uh, which would trouble me is when you are collecting information and keeping information about bystanders and innocents who have nothing to do with the uh, target of your intelligence. If you're doing bulk collection of everything that crosses this switch on the internet, knowing that you're going to be uh, surveilling many of your own citizens in the process, then I think it's pretty far out of bounds. It's certainly out of bounds to do that without telling anyone. What did you think of Edward Snowden as the man? Now, there's one form of communication, obviously, when you're using, you know, written typed words. And then there's quite a different experience when you're person to person looking into the eye, into the face of somebody. In your meeting in Russia, what was your initial impression? And then how was that reassessed, perhaps, by the end of the meeting? My first impression was of a guy who was comfortable in his skin, uh, proud of what he'd done, uh, quite serious, but capable of, of uh, dark humor and uh, joking around, interested, deeply, genuinely interested in the issues that he was talking about. That was what animated him. Uh, a little bit vain. I took photographs of him, and he'd spent a lot of time worrying about his appearance and his shirt and uh, you know, th- th- wanting to look at the photos before I could take them away, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, I guess full of passion for his cause and uh, and and very hard to derail from his decisions about what to talk about and what not to. What's interesting between the two of you, and I say this with great respect, between Edward Snowden and Barton Gelman, the journalist, is the two of you in your own fashion, you very early on, um, are willing to speak to authority and to correct it. 
Um, did you find yourself addressing a kindred spirit or were there some facets to Edward Snowden that you found alien? I, I, I do identify a little bit with uh, the idea of uh, saying no to authority from time to time. Uh, I don't like conflict especially, but I don't like being told what to do by someone who's got no business telling me. Uh, I don't imagine myself in his place. He, uh, he did something that's very, very rare. Uh, picture yourself in a large workplace and you see something, you hear something you don't like, you don't approve of, you think it's wrong. Uh, most people, most of the time, just go along with it. Everyone else is going along with it. Uh, this is my job. I need this job. Uh, I'll just do what I'm told. Um, some people might say, could I have a transfer? Uh, some people might complain about it to their fellow employees. Some people might even quit the job in protest. What almost nobody ever does is say, it's my responsibility to bring this down. It's my responsibility to stop this gigantic force that's, that's set in motion here. Uh, it's my responsibility to bring it to public light. Uh, and I'll do it at almost any cost. Snowden imagined that he might be killed in this process. He, he thought it likely he would spend the rest of his life behind bars. Uh, and he was prepared to do it anyway. Uh, there's a fascinating scene in the book in which Snowden first meets Daniel Ellsberg, the famous you know, mm -hmm. uh, whistleblower from the Pentagon Papers days back in the 70s. Uh, Ellsberg is now well into his 80s and says to Snowden, where have you been all these 40 years? I've been looking for you. I've been waiting for someone like you to come along. Uh, wh why is it that so few people ever do this? And Snowden couldn't explain it either. When the charges were made, which were made, that um, uh, people's lives were being compromised, certainly people working as agents, sometimes double agents, were uh, in jeopardy as a result of all of this manifestation and revelation of these documents. Did you feel culpable and uh, uh, conscientiously disturbed a little bit uh, by the circumstances of it being revealed? Or did you just take it in stride and say, well, this is a, a potential and perhaps even natural outfall of such disclosures? So I respectfully differ with you about the kinds of security stakes there were. There's, there's been no suggestion that uh, that agents were compromised uh, or people's lives were put at risk. Uh, there, there, the, the main assertion by critics is that Snowden has, what he's done has, and what I've done as, by publishing him, uh, by publishing the documents, is, is to lose collection, to lose opportunities to gather intelligence that would otherwise have been gathered. And there is no doubt in my mind that that's true, that there are, there are some costs to intelligence gathering of, of revealing these things. There's, because there are two major interests in tension here. One is self-government and the other is self-defense. Uh, and if you don't think it was worth paying any cost for a public debate about unknown secret intelligence, of, intelligence gathering of the government of its own people, uh, then you're not going to agree with these disclosures. But uh, I, I believe that there were costs and they were justified. It's also the case that some of the biggest costs to intelligence gathering came from the proper operation of our social and governmental instruments. That is, if 
people are angry about the PRISM program, and Google is therefore moved to encrypt its connections to your computer, um, the government loses an easy opportunity to, uh, to, to, uh, to vacuum up that data. But is that a, a feature or a bug? That's the market operating as it's supposed to, people choosing more privacy and a large company responding to that. Likewise, if uh, people get angry as voters and uh, their members of Congress vote to stop one of the NSA programs, uh, uh, and so it's no longer lawful for the NSA to do that, is that a feature or a bug? That The NSA lost collection because it's no longer allowed to do that kind of uh, program, but that's because Congress said so. Well, um, you know, Kendra, I, I'm happily uh, ready to be corrected. And uh, from what you've told me, I, I deserve to be, and so I welcome that. But I was under the impression, and it may be mistaken, that there were some voices who said, oh, this is a compromise of U.S. intelligence, and therefore it may expose people and potentially cost lives. Am I totally wrong in that? There were... There were things in the documents uh, that would that would have named clandestine agents, for example, or 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 there were photographs of clandestine agents in the documents, um, or there were th and there were clues in there that could have led to the discovery that so and so who came here as a visitor in the guise of one thing was really somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, those are the things that we didn't publish. Okay, so uh, there fact, was at least I, a fear I, of it. There was a fear of it. Yes. Um, so I want to ask you regarding um, the aftermath uh, of, of all of this. What is, as you see it, the great takeaway um, from the benefit to the United States, the benefit to individualism, to privacy, and um, to a hopefully brighter future? Well, I, I think that uh, Snowden was good for democracy because he enabled the people to decide and debate large questions about what they were prepared to accept their government doing and what they were not. Uh, and I believe he was good for security because he, he was directly responsible for the locking down of the internet uh, across a wide variety of websites. You, you, you see the little lock button on your, the top left of your browser screen now on almost all major websites. And if you go back just five, you know, 10 years, if you go back to before Snowden, um, that just wasn't the case. I mean, my own employer, the Washington Post, WashingtonPost.com, was not an encrypted website. Today it is, uh, and for the same reason. So Snowden was good for democracy, and he was good for security, and, he, and there were costs in terms of intelligence collection to what he did. But I believe the costs were ultimately worth it. What was the most intriguing thing that you discovered about yourself, Mr. Barton Gelman, doing your research in this? that was perhaps distinctive from your first book? Well, I discovered a lot about the way I behaved under stress. I discovered that uh, I was capable of uh, sort of recursive behavior. I became, I, I fell further and further into a rabbit hole of self-defense. The more I learned about surveillance, the more I realized that uh, my own work, my own sources were at risk. Uh, I knew that there were people trying to steal the files from me. I knew that there was a possibility the government would try to take them away. And there was no end to the steps I could take to, uh, to protect myself. And therefore, I could never be satisfied that I'd protected myself enough or protected the materials. So it, 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 it had a corrosive impact on my professional and personal life. 
Barton, I'd like to thank you for being a guest on Watching America. And I want to thank you, uh, being a person who avidly divulges regularly my love for this country and for the concept of freedom. I want to thank you for being a, a vigilant journalist and an intriguing voice and somebody who um, is worthy, actually, as Edward Snowden had pointed out, of realizing that you're not going to be a lackey on somebody's side just for the sake of it, but you're going to exercise discernment and impartiality in what you try and pursue. That is so welcomed and needed. So Barton Gelman, author of Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State, thank you so very much for honoring us on Watching America with your presence. Thank you very much for all those kind words. God bless. Take care. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of Content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for your kind and considerate contributions that make this show possible. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.